Hey everybody, welcome to another Ithaca Bound podcast episode. I'm your host, Andrew Schiestel, joining the show today from Tunisia. And this is the podcast where we explore history and mythology in the Mediterranean basin. Today I'm joined again with Dr. Gary Forsyth. On April 27th, 2021, Dr. Forsyth joined the show and we had a conversation about the myths and legends of the founding of Rome. Then on June 7th, 2021, Dr. Forsyth joined the show again and we spoke about the transition period when Rome went from a kingdom to a republic. So that's even earlier than the empire, the imperial period. So we had a chat then about the, the transition from, from kingdom to republic. Dr. Forsyth is back on the show today and we're going to have a conversation about what occurred in Rome, uh, so in the Roman Republic, in the 5th century BCE, so that's the 400s. Dr. Forsyth is Associate Professor in the Department of History at Texas Tech University, based in the US. He's author of nine books, including writing the book, A Critical History of Early Rome, From Prehistory to the First Punic War, which was published by the University of California Press. And Dr. Forsyth joins the show today from Texas in the US. Welcome back on the show, Gary. Thank you very much. I'm glad to be back. So when we chatted last, uh, we, we covered the uh, transition period when Rome went from a kingdom to a republic. And where we somewhat left off was a, con a dialogue about when that actually occurred. And it appears that there is, uh, in the scholarly community, consensus as to when abouts that occurred, but there doesn't appear to be clear consensus on what the specific date is. I think you mentioned that most agree that it was either on 509 uh, BCE or around that period of time. So like a, a circa almost, right? Um, five, five, 509. Can you start before we, and that's the sixth century, obviously, but before we get to the fifth century, can you start by explaining um, why there appears to be uh, not enough clear evidence in the records for scholars to be clear about what date uh, the Roman Republic formed? Okay, we don't get what we would call an absolute uh, chronology of Roman history until we reach the year 300 BC. And after that, from, from 300 onwards, we're absolutely certain about the dating of events in terms of absolute time. So if we, <clears throat> from that point onwards, if we say something happened in uh, uh, the year uh, 282, uh, we know that it actually happened in the year 282. Uh, before 300 BC, things are a little bit uncertain, and this is because the um, chronological framework that the Romans had in later times that they were um, using for uh, constructing their histories of, of the early period were slightly defective. They had a list of consuls, but there seems to have been some defects in the list. That, that, that is, that there seemed to have been a few years in which there were missing names because the, 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 the records would have been written down on some kind of perishable material um, and probably had to be copied and recopied periodically and there were probably some errors made over the course of time. Um, and uh, anyway, the, uh, in, in the uh, bits and pieces of information we have about 
these events uh, prior to 300, um, there's there's uh, evidence of that there being a slight chronological problems or inconsistencies or gaps here and there. And eventually, by the by the last years of the Republic, um, um, two particular scholars uh, worked out a chronological system that was uh, henceforth accepted as the standard chronology. The first of these uh, men was called Atticus. He was a close friend of Cicero. He lived from 110 to 32 BC. Uh, and he, uh, in the year 47, published his chronological treatise called Liber Annales, which I guess it literally mean, means the, 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 the annual book or the book of chronology. And he worked out this system and it was uh, shortly thereafter taken over by a contemporary, uh, a man named Varro, V-A-R-R-O, who was considered to be the greatest uh, learned man of uh, Roman society of the day. And, see, and since he accepted it, it, it then basically received the stamp of his approval and was then taken over by uh, Rome's first emperor, Augustus, uh, as the standard chronology for the Roman state. And according to this Baronian uh, chronology, as we call it today, and this is the chronological system that all ancient historians use simply out of convenience. Um, the city of Rome was founded in the year 753 by its first king Romulus, and the Roman Republic began in the year 509 uh, with the, with the uh, first uh, consuls, uh, and then the uh, usually the other sort of uh, major um, landmark event in this uh, early uh, period is the year in which the Gauls captured Rome, and according to the Veronian system, this is in the year 390 uh, BC. Uh, but Polybius, uh, who was a Greek writer writing around the mid second century, actually dates that event in the year 386. So there's a, a four year discrepancy there. And there seems to be about a four year discrepancy, actually, if you go back to 509 uh, BC as well, because we have an independent Greek source that dates one particular event known as the, the Battle of Aricia, A-R-I-C-I-A, that occurred near Rome um, in the year uh, 504 uh, BC. But in Livy, he dates it four years earlier to 508, the second year of the uh, Republic, supposedly. Uh, and Dionysius of Halicarnassus, writing at the same time as Livy, the Greek writer, dates it to the uh, next year, 507 BC. So anyway, there, there seems to be a little bit of um, um, variation in, in, in some of these dates, and, and um, that, that, that's um, uh, pretty much the uh, brief outline of that. Okay, so conventional belief is it's late 500s, late, late, yeah, late, late, yeah, late 6th century, um, five, five, oh, 509 or... Uh, around that around that period of time okay so then let's work our way into the fifth century then the 400s bce um what are the um what are the main main things that you think we should cover in this in this chat if you want to kind of outline it almost like a like a table of contents and we can work our way through the details okay well there uh when, when we deal with this uh, period 
um, it's probably best to deal with it in, in sort of two somewhat distinct areas. One would be Rome's foreign affairs, uh, and the other would be Rome's domestic affairs. Um, and so that's that, that's pretty much about it. And for for um, the, the, the fifth century, uh, I, I regard much of what um, we're told by our uh, two chief uh, sources of information, Livy and Dionysius of Halicarnassus, who were both writing at exactly the same time, the early years of the, the reign of Augustus uh, of this period, so the writing almost 500 years after the beginning of the uh, Republic, and they're writing what we call an analytic account, that is a year-by-year -year account, because they have the chronological framework of the list of the consuls uh, to guide them. Um, and much of what they record for the 400s, especially when it comes to um, the, um, the, the battles and things that, that they record going on between Rome and its neighbors. So a lot of that uh, is, is probably uh, stuff that we really can't give much credence to. So in, in a sense, the fifth century, in many ways, although it looks as if we have a lot of um, data on that, uh, that period it is is really kind of a dark age because so much of it is um, is is unreliable. Okay. Do you do you want to cover the foreign affairs first? Yeah. Okay. Um, now, as the fifth century progresses, and then as we actually move into the fourth century, we actually can see as we as we, now Dionysius of Halicarnassus' account is available to us only down to the year. Uh, about 445 and, and then then after that point we, we only have bits and pieces of his account uh, Livy's account is our only really fairly detailed continuous account um, and he goes all the way down to the year 293 so he covers both the, the 5th century the 4th century and then a little ways into the 3rd century and that's his first 10 books of his massive history uh, and then we do not have the, the next 10 books of his history preserved to us that would have covered the, the years uh, 292 down to 219. Um, but we've got uh, Polybius, at least from, from the <clears throat> beginning of the first penny war onward, onwards in 264. Um, and then we've got Levy from 218, the beginning of the Hannibalic or second penny war uh, onwards. Um, so Livy is our, our really only totally continuous uh, account that we have for both the fifth and the fourth century. Uh, and as as um, as we read Livy's account, um, it's clear that that once we get into the fourth century, and as we move closer and closer to 300 BC, there's more and more in Livy's account that that it uh, uh, seems to be historically valid um it's uh, it, it's difficult we, we can isolate certain things in his account for the fifth century that we're fairly secure about um but but much of it is um uh sort of uh, added material by uh, uh, roman historians in order to fill out a, a uh, what was largely a void a historical void um for, for the for the fifth century, but anyway, getting getting to foreign affairs. So for the the first, let's say about the first half 
of the um, fifth century. Um, Livy and Dionysius record all kinds of um, uh, battles going on between Rome together with its uh, Latin uh, community allies uh, against two principal peoples, uh, one called the Aequi or the Aequians, A-E-Q-U-I-A-N-S, and the other called the Volskians, V-O-L-S-C-I-A-N-S, uh, who were living up sort of in the mountainous areas uh, impinging upon the, um, the, the relatively level plain inhabited by the Latin people. And, and we, we uh, are fairly sure that what was going on was uh, sort of traditional warfare between uh, sort of highlanders versus uh, plain folk as the highlanders were trying to come down and uh, grab pieces of uh, more fertile uh, t- territory. Um, and we can't really, uh, about all we can say is, is that it occurred. Um, but in, in the, uh, the Roman historical tradition, there, there are two stories that sort of stand out uh, for, this, uh, for the first half or so of, of the fifth century. Uh, and one involves the Romans fighting against the Volscians, uh, and uh, another episode involves the Romans uh, fighting against the, the Iquians. Um, the, the first of these stories um, is supposed to occur sometime around 490, um, and it involves a man named Coriolanus, C-O-R-I-O-L-A-N-U-S. And here's how the story goes. His full, full name was Marcus, uh, excuse me, well, it was Gaius Marcius Coriolanus. And he received his last name, Coriolanus, a sort of a honorific name because he was a Roman um, who distinguished himself in battle against the Volscians in the Roman capture of this town called Corioli. Um, and then eventually uh, he. Uh, um, became so hated by, by many of the um, uh, his fellow Romans that he was driven into exile. He then um, um, uh, takes refuge among the Volscians and then becomes their leader. And once the Volscians are under, under the leadership of, of him, they start making major headway in, in their battles against the Romans to such an extent that uh, Coriolanus leads uh, an invasion uh, into Roman territory itself. I, I should point out that uh, uh, Plutarch, uh, in his um, large, big series of Greek and Roman biographies, actually devoted one of his biographies to Coriolanus. Uh, and uh, uh, William Shakespeare actually uh, used that as the basis for one of his uh, plays called Coriolanus. Anyway, so Coriolanus uh, invades Roman territory, and the, the, the Romans are at their wit's end. Uh, to know how to deal with him. And so they, uh, they, they first send out ambassadors to meet with him in his encampment to try to uh, work out a uh, peace settlement. Uh, he rejects it because he's so angry with the Romans for having sent him into exile. And so then, then the Romans uh, prevail upon his mother, his wife, and his two children who are still living uh, in, in uh, Rome uh, to go out and, and to make a personal uh, plea to him to um, uh, lead his army uh, back out of Roman territory. Um, and first, his, his wife uh, and his two children make a very uh, pitiful uh, and, and uh, sort of pathetic uh, plea uh, uh, to him, and he, he scorns all of that. 
uh, and it's finally his mother who succeeds uh, in uh, getting Coriolanus to, uh, uh, to to withdraw. And she does so by uh, not um, any kind of uh, uh, sort of heart-tugging emotional appeal, but instead uh, she really upbraids her son uh, for uh, doing the unthinkable, uh, for uh, invading and threatening the land that had given him birth. And so she, she really, really um, uh, rakes him over the coals uh, as, uh, as being such an ingrate and in that he, he shouldn't be doing this. And Coriolanus is so shamed by his mother uh, that, that he, uh, he leads his army uh, back uh, into Volscian territory and then, then he's never heard of again. Um, now what uh, Roman, what uh, as modern historians have done with this story of Coriolanus is this. Uh, we're fairly sure that it probably does reflect uh, a time in the early fifth century when the Volscians did in fact pose a major threat to the Romans. But when we look at the story of Coriolanus specifically, what we think happened is this. The Romans, of course, were writing centuries later when they were the masters of a great Mediterranean empire. And at that time, of course, the Volscian people didn't even exist anymore because they'd been thoroughly absorbed into the Roman state. Um, and Rome, later Roman historians simply could not um, bear the idea of uh, the, the little bitty uh, Volskians um, uh, uh, becoming so dominant uh, over the, the, the great Romans at, at such an early stage. So there actually might have been uh, a, a very important and successful Volskian leader. Um, but what the Roman historians later did was they converted that leader into a Roman by making him Gaius Marcus Coriolanus, who goes into exile, becomes the leader of the Volskians. And because the Volskians now are under the leadership of a Roman, they're able to uh, accomplish things that they previously had not been able uh, to accomplish when they were just under their, their own leader. So, so we, we think that the story re reflects uh, that, that kind of revisionism uh, uh, based upon sort of patriotic um, goals that the Roman historians uh, later had in, uh, in, in writing their history. So that's, that, that, that's one of the early stories that we have about uh, Roman foreign affairs for this period. The, the other story involves a character known as Cincinnatus. Um, and this event is supposed to have occurred in the year 458. And this involved the, uh, the, the other sort of early threatening people, the Iquians. And according to this story, in the year 458, one of the two consuls of the year, who was not Cincinnatus, but a guy named uh, Minucius, uh, led a Roman army out to attack the Iquians, was defeated, uh, and found himself besieged in, in, uh, in his uh, encampment. Um, and it was a very serious uh, situation. Uh, he succeeds in getting a message back to, to Rome, um, uh, indicating his peril. And at that point, <clears throat> the Romans decide that they are going to appoint someone as dictator. This is a special office of the, the early days of the Republic. We'll have to talk about it at a later time. Um, 
And so they, they decide that the, the person that they're going to call upon to rescue the Roman state in this time of crisis is Cincinnatus. Now, Cincinnatus was, um, uh, was a member of a very um, uh, aristocratic family at this time, the family of the Quintius uh, family. Um, and when the, when the Roman Senate decides that uh, they're going to call upon Cincinnatus uh, to be dictator, they send emissaries uh, out to Cincinnatus's farm to, uh, to uh, uh, ask him to become dictator. So they come out and they actually find Cincinnatus out in the field uh, behind his oxen uh, plowing the land uh, and they announce to him that uh, uh, your country is calling upon you uh, to rescue it from this crisis by taking on the office of dictator. So he leaves his plow, uh, he raises a, 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 another military force, comes out, defeats the Iquians, uh, and relieves the, uh, the Roman consul and his army from being uh, besieged. Um, Cincinnatus then returns to Rome, uh, celebrates a uh, military uh, victory in the form of a, what the Romans call a triumph, um, and then uh, resigns his office as dictator with, within just a very short period of time of having assumed those extraordinary powers. And then he goes back to his little farm and goes back to farming again. That was seen by the later Romans as, the, as sort of the ideal patriotic behavior of a Roman that, that, uh, that they thought of as um, a standard. Uh, in, in the early days of Rome before uh, moral corruption and everything set in. So the story of Cincinnatus was later viewed by, by Romans as uh, sort of the ideal of uh, Roman um, traditional values and patriotism in, in the early days. Um, and this, this story then, <clears throat> uh, um, of course, was, was very famous throughout all of the sort of early modern um, time period of, uh, of, of Western Europe when uh, classical learning was a, a standard part of the, the education. Uh, and then at the time of the American Revolution, um, when George Washington was called upon to uh, lead the, uh, the Continental Army uh, in the fight against the, uh, the British to win the independence of the 13 colonies of uh, North America, uh, he was seen as, as America's Cincinnatus, because up until then he had been um, basically just sort of a gentleman farmer, um, and he had done some other things, but uh, that's pretty much what he what he had been. Um, so he comes out from um, uh, 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 that situation, takes command of the army, leads it for several years, and, until finally uh, the, uh, the the colonies uh, win their independence, and then once all of the fighting has has ended. Um, he, he then voluntarily walks away uh, from his office as a commander in chief of the Continental uh, Forces. And so he, he was hailed at the time during his own lifetime as America's great Cincinnatus. And in fact, in the, af in the immediate aftermath of the American Revolution, the, the officers who had served in the Continental Army Form themselves into a, a veteran society, and, where, and they, they they would met, meet on a, uh, a regular basis and they'd have meetings and things. 
um, and they call themselves the Society of the Cincinnati. And Cincinnati, Cincinnati is the plural of Cincinnatus uh, because they all saw themselves uh, in, in the mold of Cincinnatus. People had been uh, people who had been um, uh, farmers and shopkeepers and uh, various things who had been called away from their, their uh, normal life uh, to become part of the uh, uh, American um, Continental Army. Uh, and then went back uh, to those positions again once they had, um, once once the war had uh, had, had ended, um, and, um, and and then uh, within a few years of the foundation of the Society of the Cincinnati, um, the um, uh, the governor of what was known at that time as the Northwestern Territory of um, of North America. This was the area that uh, eventually. Uh, was formed into the states of Ohio, Indiana, Illinois, Michigan, uh, and Wisconsin. Um, he was a member, not only a member, but actually at one time was the president of the Society of the Cincinnati. Uh, but while he was uh, governor of the, the Northwestern Territory, uh, he um, had one of the newly established towns on the Ohio River um, named Cincinnati in, in honor of the uh, Society of, of the Cincinnati. Of course, that's the modern-day city of, of uh, Cincinnati. So anyway, that's the uh, sort of a second major story uh, that the, the Romans told about the, the, these early uh, uh, days. And, and, and it's uh, um, it, it, it may have some some um, uh, truth in it, um, or it possibly might be a doublet of another event that we know about that does in fact look historical, dating to the year 380 BC, involving a member of the family, the same member of the family, in which he was made dictator uh, and defeated a coalition of nine little uh, communities that were threatening Rome at the time uh, and celebrated a triumph and left. Uh, in the Capuline Temple um, of, of Jupiter, a, um, a victory monument commemorating his victory along with a uh, dedicatory inscription that, that Livy actually paraphrases in, in his history. So uh, whether the story actually took place uh, as described in Livy in 458, we're really not quite sure, or whether it's simply a uh, sort of recycling uh, and duplication of, uh, of a later episode in 380. Uh, we're, we're really not uh, certain. But it was a story that the Romans uh, uh, greatly uh, um, uh, favored uh, because uh, to them it symbolized and epitomized uh, the uh, uh, traditional values of, of a patriotic Roman back in the early days of the Republic. A shout out to all the uh, Cincinnati Reds uh, base baseball fans out there. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> um, the show has covered the Etruscans before. The show has covered the Samnites. Um, is there archaeological evidence um, that you're aware of, Gary, of the Volscians and the Iquians existing at, at one point in time? Boy, the archaeology on that, that, that I'm not really familiar with. The, um, That's okay. That's okay. Um, but the only thing I think we really have archaeologically is that <clears throat> um, the, the Romans and the Latins eventually did succeed in overcoming both the Iquians and the Volscians. And 
one of the things that they did um, was to secure the uh, sort of marginal, highly disputed areas from time to time um, with with uh, uh, colonies that they would they would establish a a small, heavily fortified um, place to serve as sort of the the outpost uh, against these uh, threatening uh, people. And we do have archaeological remains of uh, some of those settlements that they have been uh, excavated, but uh, trying to find any uh, real archaeological remains for either the Eichmanns or the Volskins, I'm, I'm not really sure that we've been successful in, uh, uh, in, in doing that. It's um... Okay, okay. Um, do you want to, do you think this covers sufficiently for the sake of the episode being under an hour for everybody? Do you think uh, we've covered the foreign affairs side sufficiently and we can work our way into the domestic affairs? Pretty much, except once we get into the second half of the fifth century, things change a little bit because um, finally the, 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 the Romans in the year 426, and maybe I'll mention this in connection with the uh, military tribunes with consular power, uh, in the year 426, the Romans uh, capture a small town uh, just north of Rome called Fidenae, F-E-D-E-N-A-E. -E. Uh, and that seems to have been sort of the first uh, baby step that the Romans were taking towards territorial expansion. Uh, and it, it was a step that uh, led them 30 years later um, uh, in, in their successful war against a much larger community on the other side of the Tiber River, uh, the Etruscan city of Veii, V-E-I-I, that they captured in 396. And that was, in fact, the major acquisition of, of Roman territory. Um, but uh, other than these uh, sort of uh, uh, earlier battles and, and such, yeah, that, that, that pretty much uh, finishes uh, things off until I think we get towards the uh, the end of the fifth century. It's pretty clear that the Romans and the Latins are getting the upper hand against the the Iquins and the Volscans, and then, like I say, the Romans um, uh, take a, a, a step towards territorial expansion by uh, capturing Fidenae, and then that's followed a generation later by their capture of Vey, which, which was in fact a major acquisition of Roman territory. What do you want to cover then for the domestic affairs? Well, there's a tremendous amount to cover. Um, um, the, um, the other major thing that occurs over the course of the fifth century, apart from uh, Rome's uh, foreign affairs, is that it undergoes various changes internally uh, as the Roman state is becoming a, um, a larger state with uh, more complexity and require, requiring uh, greater needs. And so um, the, the transition from the monarchy uh, to the Republic in 509 is sort of the first major indication of that in, in what we um, can see as sort of an ongoing process of what we could call state formation. Um, the, 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 the king is replaced by two annually elected officials called consuls who head the Roman state uh, militarily, uh, and they are joined by other um, officials early on in the Republic. Uh, one of these offices is known as the tribunes, 
of the plebs or the plebeian tribunes uh, and according to the um, um, tradition that we have in Livy um, they first when they were first created um, they numbered two just like the consuls um, and then there was uh, some debate as to whether or not they were immediately increased to five or whether the increase to five uh, took place at a later date but eventually they were increased, the number was increased to 10. Uh, and from that point onwards, uh, according to Livy, they reached the number of 10 in the year 457 BC. And from that point onwards, uh, all the way to the end of the Republic and on into the Principate, uh, they, they numbered 10. Um, and they, uh, they assumed office on December 10th. Uh, which at the time in the uh, days of the uh, uh, early and middle, most of the middle Republic uh, was uh, December was the 10th month of the Roman year because initially the Roman year began on March 1st. Uh, and so December, which actually you know, was from the Latin word decem meaning 10, December was the 10th month of the Roman year. And so the 10 Libyan tribunes assumed office on December 10th. So the 10 men assumed office on the 10th day of the 10th month of the year. So it's not kind of neat. Um, so th that office gets created and then along with them uh, are created two other officials known as Edals uh, uh, of the plebs. Um, and then um, a major event takes place in 451 BC with the codification of Rome's uh, law. Um, and uh, to bring this about, the Romans decided that they would not have uh, two consuls for the year, but instead they, ele they, uh, they elected a board of 10 men, decem, D-E-C-M, viri, V-I-R-A, uh, uh, 10 men, uh, and they were given the task of codifying Rome's law. Uh, and this again is another indication of uh, ongoing increased uh, complexity uh, in, in this process uh, that we call uh, state formation. We see this uh, happening uh, er in earlier generations uh, when, when it comes to the Greek city-states of the Mediterranean. One of the um, um, key features of state formation among Greek city-states was that they eventually move from uh, being a society or community that's governed by uh, what we could call customary or oral, oral uh, legal traditions for deciding disputes and things uh, to having an actual written law code. <clears throat> and that's what's going on uh, in Rome. And so these 10 men uh, drew up a, a body of, uh, of law uh, and it was accepted and enacted as, um, as a statutory law by the Roman people in, in a voting assembly. Uh, and so, uh, and, and then the, the, the body of the law that they uh, had composed was engraved on uh, the bronze tablets. And since it occupied 12 bronze tablets that were set up in the forum, uh, it uh, henceforth uh, came to be known as the law of the 12 tables. And this became a very important uh, cornerstone in the development of Roman law. We don't actually possess the complete text of that law, uh, it was, um, uh, but we do have uh, substantial portions of it 
uh, that, that are quoted to us in sources that we do have because it was, was so important uh, throughout the Republic and on into the uh, time of the Roman emperors. And in fact, some features of the law were still in effect all the way up to the time of the Emperor Justinian uh, in the sixth uh, century of our era when he carried out his uh, massive reorganization of Roman law in the form of the um, uh, of um, uh, the Corpus Juris Civilis or involving his, his digest. Um, uh, but we've, we've got, I think it's 104, 105 um, either paraphrased or quoted provisions from the law that Pope tables that give us quite a bit of information about the, uh, the, the nature of this law code. Um, so that, that, that's, a, that's a major thing uh, that occurred uh, at that time. Then in the immediate aftermath of that codification, I'm skipping over a lot of uh, other uh, things that really be <laughs> difficult to, to explain. Um, the, the decade of the 440s that, that come immediately after the codification of the 12 tables also gives us further indication of um, the, the, the Romans um, organizing and reorganizing and experimenting with new ways of uh, um, configuring uh, institutions of, of the state. Um, so for example, uh, we're told by uh, one of our sources that in the year 447 BC, uh, the Romans created a new office called Quaestor, Q-U-A-E-S-T-O-R, uh, and they were two in number. They were later increased to five in the year 421. Um, but anyway, they, these were sort of the lowest ranking officials at the time, and they, they were basically uh, uh, treasurers or financial officials. And they, the, the two quaestors that were initially um, created uh, were probably uh, probably held their office in Rome and were placed in charge of uh, keeping track of uh, money coming in and out of the uh, Rome's major um, uh, uh, treasury or uh, the sort of primitive bank of Rome that was uh, in, in the, uh, the, the the temple of Saturn uh, located at the foot of the uh, Capitoline Hill where they kept all of the um, all of the precious metals and, and things. So the quaestors uh, took charge of that. Uh, and then um, four years after that in 443 uh, BC, uh, the Romans create another new office, and this was the office of censor, censor, C-E-N-S-O-R. Um, and they, they were two in number. Um, and eventually, we don't know exactly, our, our uh, knowledge on the history of the office of censor is very, very uh, in incomplete. Um, but by the time we reach the, let's say, uh, 300 or so um, onwards, uh, the Romans are uh, electing two censors roughly about every five years or so. Um, and they held office for 18 months and their primary function, well, they, they did a number of things, uh, but they, they, they took their name from the fact that they carried out a census uh, of, of the Roman population. And this would have been for the, the, uh, the purposes of finding out how large the Roman citizen body was, what their property holdings were, so that they can impose a standard 
uh, property tax upon uh, families uh, based upon uh, you know what what they what they were uh, thought to own in terms of land and various assets, etc., uh, and also for uh, having uh, detailed records um, for the military recruitment of, of, of Rome's adult uh, male citizen population. And that, that was the primary goal early on, but eventually they take on other uh, functions as well. But the creation of that office in 443, again, is indicating that the Roman state is growing in terms of its complexity. Uh, it is trying to organize and structure things and institutionalize things in various ways. Um, the other really major thing that happens uh, uh, at this same time occurs in 445-444 BC when the Romans take the decision that they are now going to um, have the uh, chief military office of the state that the two consuls may be replaced by another kind of official, or at least a, 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 a different number of officials. So from 444 down to 367, we have an interesting situation in which um, the the, the major officials heading the Roman state sometimes are two consuls, as usual, as uh, before, or they might be three, four, six, and according to some sources, uh, even eight or ten uh, annually elected officials that are not called consuls, but instead they were known as military tribunes with consular power. So they had the title of military tribune and, and they were given consular power to carry out their their, 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 their duties. They're, they're also sometimes in the modern sources referred to as consular tribunes in order to distinguish them from the plebeian uh, tribunes. Um, but anyway, what we see happening <clears throat> is that there's sort of a gradual increase over this uh, roughly 70-some year period from the 440s to the 360s, uh, we see a gradual increase in the number of these um, alternate officials from three to four to six. Um, <clears throat> we're not sure that they actually did elect as many as eight or 10. Those might be uh, uh, faulty. Um, that might be the result of faulty record keeping in later times. We don't really know. Um, but anyway, um, as we go from 444 down to 367, uh, in the early years of that period, the consuls dominate in terms of being the more frequently elected officials. Then the consuls gradually give way to years, more and more years of military tribunes. And the military tribunes, as they become the more dominant annual official, their numbers increase from three to four to six. And so I can just run through this very quickly. So for, for the period of 444 down to 426, um, which is a period of... Uh, 16 or so years? Let's see. Quick math. Actually, they, they count inclusively, um, so it's, uh, it's it's actually uh, 18 years 
in my 427, excuse me, 427, it's 18 years. Right. Uh, for that 18 years, uh, we have 13 pairs of consoles, uh, and we have only five years in which we have military tribunes with consular power, and, and they number three. Then in the year uh, 426, the year in which Fedenai is captured, uh, the number of um, uh, military tribunes is increased for the first time to four. And then between 426 and 406, a period of 21 years, counted inclusively, um, the military tribunes for the first time predominate. Um, there are 14 years of military tribunes and they fluctuate from being three to four. Uh, and there's only seven years of consuls. And then starting in 405, we get our first year in which we have six uh, military tribunes with consular power being elected. Uh, and that, that means that, that stays in, in the, the, that's the case all the way down to 367. And there's only two years, uh, 393 and 392, in which there are pairs of consuls. And so that, so we, we see the um, steady rise in the number of these alternate officials uh, and the consuls becoming fewer and fewer as, as time goes on. Then we get, and this is now getting us into the fourth century, um, but then in 366, we have the, a huge reorganization once again. Um, and the Romans at that time decide that they're going to abolish the phenomenon of military tribunes with the consular power. They're going to bring back the consulship. But with the consulship, they're now going to add uh, three other new officials. And so henceforth, the state is going to have sort of five uh, officials replacing the boards of six previous uh, military tribunes with consular power. And there's two consuls. Then there's another official with a praetor, P-R-A-E-T-O-R, uh, who's uh, functions are primarily judicial uh, and then there's two other uh, lesser officials known as co-rule uh, edos that take on the various uh, urban uh, functions and i think the the best understanding of what's happening during this period of 444 down to 367 is that the needs of the roman state both militarily in foreign affairs and also internally in various ways is growing because of the growing size of the um, of the Roman state itself, and that to deal with this initially, what the Romans did was they just created this sort of blanket office of military tribunes with the consular power, and probably allocated to them whatever uh, needed to be done either uh, domestically or in terms of uh, external affairs from year to year, um, and then finally they decide in 367 that they're going to restructure things. Um, by bringing back a, a system in which they have uh, offices with a clearly defined and differentiated uh, functions, two consuls, a praetor, and, and five curalidas. So that, that's the other major thing that uh, sort of happens in terms of Rome's internal um, development in this phenomenon that we call state formation over the course of the uh, fifth uh, century. Some closing. And all of this, I haven't gone at all into what we call the struggle of the orders. I don't know if you want to go into that or not. That's such a complex thing. <laughs> you, you might want to just stop, stop, <laughs> stop, stop where we're at right now. Well, how about um, because we probably have roughly 
um, I'm not looking at, we're not looking at an edited, you know, um, you know, with the outro, outro, etc. So I don't have the exact time code, but we probably have 10 minutes or so left. I do have some follow-up questions I want to make sure I get in as part of more of a closing. Is there a way to, is there a way to su summarize um, that last uh, topic point, Gary, without getting too, too much into details for the sake, for the sake of time? You mean the struggle of the orders? Yeah, that way at least it's covered for for everybody. No, not really? No, uh, no. It's it's. Uh, there's no way I can do I can do it justice in, in ten minutes. <laughs> so let, let's see your follow up questions. It's, we'll, we'll bring the episode to an end. It's it's noted for everybody if they want to do more research. The uh, the struggle of the orders. That's what it's called, Gary. Yeah. All right. All right. Let's do the uh, closing questions in a rapid fire kind of context. Um, the plebeians. Can can you explain what um, what that the definition of plebeians are, and why what why scholars believe that the tribune of the of the plebs as an office was was formed in this period of time in Rome. Well, that gets us into the struggle of the orders. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, that gets us into the whole debate and. Uh, murkiness of um, the, the struggle of the orders and the existence of patricians and plebeians in the Roman state and what uh, uh, and to what extent if, if any um, the, the, the distinction had in the in, in some of these uh, things that I've been talking about the creation of these offices and um, uh, this this sort of thing. The the, the ancient. <clears throat> I guess I'll have to try to summarize it best I can. But the, um, the 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 later Roman orthodoxy was that when the Roman Republic begins, Roman society was divided into two distinct classes: the patricians and the plebeians. And in fact. They, they, the later historians even maintained that the distinction went all the way back to Romulus, Rome's first king. That he was the one who actually divided Roman society into patricians and plebeians. But in any case, uh, the, the later Roman historical account is that in 509, uh, when the Republic begins, the, um, the, there was this distinction between the patricians and the plebeians, and that. Um, only patricians were allowed to be elected to the office of consul, and that was the that was what uh, was the case for about 140 years until finally in the year 366, when we have this major restructuring of the Roman state occurring, when the consulship is brought back from 366 onwards. There's a power sharing arrangement made between the patricians and plebeians in which henceforth, when the Romans would hold their elections every year to elect the two consuls, one often one one position would be filled by a patrician candidate, and the other office would be held by a plebeian candidate. Now, from what we can tell from the names that we have from the the consular Fosti, um, we, well, if we were to simply look at the names in, in the Consular Fosti, we would expect that if the, the later ancient account is correct on this, namely a patrician monopoly of the consulship down to 366, we would find nothing but patrician names. 
Uh, and in fact, in later times, we can classify families as patrician versus plebeians on the basis of office holding patterns. Um, and in, in later times, when we, when we have evidence, we, we can identify 19 particular families as patrician. Uh, all other families, uh, we assume, are probably plebeian. Now, when we look at the, the names uh, in the, the, the consular list from 509 onwards, what we find is that, yeah, um, the, the, uh, most of them are patrician names, but there's a whole lot of names, and there's a substantial number of names that come from families that in later times are only known to be plebeian. And there's a whole bunch of names from families that did not exist in later times because apparently they died out, and we can't tell as on the, on, because of that whether they were whether they would have been considered either patrician or plebeian. So the um, the, the data from the consular fasti that we actually have really doesn't fit the later thesis of a patrician monopoly of the consulship from 509 BC onwards. Um, we don't, in fact, know when the distinction between patrician and plebeian actually occurred. It, it's my view that the distinction between patrician and plebeian did not come into existence until uh, several decades after the beginning of the Republic and probably did not occur until sometime towards the end of the 400s. Uh, and the first clear evidence that we have of a clear distinction between patricians and plebeians in Roman society is in the year 366 BC when we have this power sharing arrangement made between uh, the two groups uh, over the tenure of the uh, consulship. So it, it's a it's a highly it, it's a very very difficult um, thing to deal with. But according to the, the the later ancient thesis that saw all of Rome's internal uh, changes over this period as resulting from a sort of class warfare between patricians and plebeians, but the patricians holding uh, the reins of power and the plebeians not. Um, the, the all, of, all of the major changes in the Roman state, according to this uh, thesis, resulted from uh, plebeian demands and agitation, etc. And, and so the office of the uh, 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 tribunes of the plebs was supposed to have come into existence as a result of what's known as the first secession of the plebs uh, in 495 uh, and 494 uh, BC uh, when the uh, plebeians were so oppressed by uh, military service and indebtedness that they uh, withdrew briefly from the um, city of Rome, re refused to uh, engage in military service and extracted uh, from the patrician elite, uh, the right to elect their own officials uh, that were henceforth known as uh, as tribunes of, of the plebs. Uh, and then this this struggle, this ongoing struggle between patricians and plebeians, is supposed to have also surrounded the codification of the law in uh, 451. Uh, and according to uh, Livy, he says that some sources um, attribute the creation of the alternative office, the military tribune, the consular power, to the struggle between patricians and plebeians because the plebeians were 
uh, so uh, demanding at that time that uh, uh, plebeians have access to the consulship that, and the patricians are so dead set against it, they finally came up with the idea, okay, we'll create this alternative office, military tribunes with consular power, and both patricians and plebeians can be elected uh, to that office. Uh, but the patricians wanted to maintain, according to this thesis, their, their monopoly of, of this, um, of, of that particular office. But then Livy says, after he goes through the whole rigmarole of uh, giving us that explanation of how the office came about, that is military treatments with constant power, he then says, but in uh, other sources uh, make no mention uh, of the plebeian demand for access to the consulship, but simply say that this office was created because Rome at the time uh, was being hard pressed militarily and that the two consuls uh, simply could not deal with uh, all of the uh, military demands of the states. Uh, they, the war against the Eichmann of Volskians was now added by uh, uh, military concerns against Vey uh, and, uh, uh, and Ardia. And so Livy uh, indicates that there was uh, uh, one line of um, in the tradition that, that saw no connection at all uh, between the, the so-called struggle of the orders and the um, creation of, of, of that particular office. And it's pretty clear that, that much of what we have, much if not all of what we have uh, in the, uh, the, the later historical tradition about the struggle of the orders um, is um, later Roman sources um, uh, retrojecting into the distant past about which they, they had very little evidence uh, the conditions of their own day in which there, there were, there, there was in fact uh, conflict between some of the, the chief uh, officials in the Roman state, primarily consuls versus tribunes. Uh, and um, once once we get to the period of the late Republic, the so-called uh, Roman Revolution, and, and we're, we're actually dealing with, with armed violence uh, in uh, 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 civil death, uh, as a result of the, these conflicts, it's pretty clear that the, the, this notion of the struggle of the orders was something that became an integral part of the um, uh, history of, of early Rome uh, in an attempt to enliven uh, the narrative for that period and to make it uh, understandable and immediate uh, to the readers of the late Republic who were experiencing all of this um, uh, conflict and, and turmoil of, of their own day. Thank you for providing extra treatment to that um, to that that item that topic, Gary. Um, we're not going to have time for the other um, uh, closing questions, but uh, we agreed you're, you're, we're going to do another episode on the fourth century uh, coming up, right in in Rome. That'd be fine, yeah, and that that's uh, <laughs> we can drag the struggle of the orders in, in, into that <laughs> in in, the, in into some greater um, detail, or if we do a, a something on, the, on the, the origins of the officials, same thing applies there. So either way. Okay. It's always great chatting with you, Gary. Thanks for coming back on the show. Okay. Thank you very much. So again, everybody, the book that I mentioned at the start of the episode that I mentioned, it appears every time Gary comes on the show, <laughs> is called A Critical History of Early Rome from prehistory to the first Punic War. I'll drop a link to it in the show notes on the IthacaBound.com's associated subpage to this episode. Gary and everybody listening as always, wishing a marvelous journey. Bye for now.
Hey again, if you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe to the podcast and I wish you a bountiful rest of your day. Bye for now.